Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, fresh from the grave. I'm Derek Parsons. Busy haunting old mansions. I'm Andrew, the ghost. And thinking David Chalmers was onto something with philosophical zombies. I'm Taylor Jones. And welcome to episode 68, where, in honor of Halloween, since this is dropping on Halloween, this episode we thought we would talk about spooky philosophers. But before mm. we get to that, <laughs> that's how fun. you guys doing that is fun right so right. fun so fun it's funny because i think this is the first year we're doing this right anything oh, yeah. halloweeny and we usually kind of capitalize off of holidays but the past <laughs> holidays we've done have been like not easter or you know christmas or thanksgiving it's been <laughs> philosophers birthdays right yeah that's true that's true i'm trying to think of philosophy sort of based around the easter bunny but uh <laughs> anyway hey andrew how are you sir i'm doing well you can you see the the facial hair mm-hmm. look at that i don't usually yeah. i don't usually uh, let it grow and i am disgusted with myself uh mm. and it's completely oh. out of my own laziness so uh i've just been relaxing i have the week off this or not the week off but i have uh i had a basically half day on friday and uh mm day off on monday so i've just been relaxing how about y'all that's great yeah and astros uh, astros are doing well so that's exciting rice lost Mm -hmm. but ut and a&m also lost so it makes up for it yeah i think the astros will probably win or the texans will probably win well you know this is three weeks no this is four weeks this is four weeks before this airs uh (laughs) so anyway in case anyone doesn't know at this point uh ou beat ut and mm-hmm. that is glorious yeah. anyway that's great um <laughs> yeah i have a question though i've been so i've been watching this david beckham documentary have you all heard about this no no on on um on netflix i think it's new and it's horrifying to see how badly english soccer fans treat their star players so oh, um, oh. yeah it's awful english, english soccer uh, football fans are um soccer they have a certain vibe yeah yeah, not mm-hmm. all of them, of course. Not all of them, of course. They're, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really. Mm-hmm. I think you'd like it. It's it's good. It's fine. More of a welcome to Wrexham kind of guy. I haven't seen it. Is that good? It's fun. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to support Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> Why? What's your problem with Ryan Reynolds? I heard he's going to sponsor us. What are you talking about? I'm against small <laughs> small media phone companies. Mm-hmm. I don't like Mint Mobile. I mean, so much I like monopolies. <laughs> anyway, how are y'all? Yeah, Taylor. Oh, I'm so good. This week, I have a short week. That's what I'm telling myself. I have Friday off of school, so I'm going home on Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock because one of my classes is canceled. So nice. I'll be looking forward <laughs> nice. to that all week. Um, Baylor lost yesterday to T- to Texas Tech. Very yeah. embarrassing. Ooh, that's... Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> especially after we had our biggest comeback in school history last week. But, you know... All in good fun. UT also lost. So, you know, we can celebrate a victory somehow. There's some wins. Yeah, yeah some wins. Have some real shot and forward when UT loses. Apologies to yeah. all Longhorn fans. <laughs> Peace and love, my friends. Uh, yeah. uh, Taylor, has, has Baylor won a game yet this year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I say that like the like as nice. They won at least one. With right? as they much love two. and compassion. They won two. <laughs> They've they won, won two. two. 
Oh, okay. We went against okay. Long Island. Long <laughs> Island. Weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it got rained out. Um, we probably still would have won. And then we beat U UCF UFC. UCF? Oh, UCF Central yeah, yeah, Florida. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. By like one point last week, it was crazy. Hey. Oh, I remember that game. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we well. scored like three touchdowns in the fourth quarter. No, that was a crazy win. It was a crazy win. Welcome to our sports podcast, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, Andrew, you, oh, yes. By the time this is out, we'll have 1989 uh-huh. Taylor's version. Yes. And will. the Eras Tour movie comes out on Friday. On Friday. I know. On Friday. Andrew, do you have your tickets? Friday? Yeah, Friday 13. Wait. That's your lucky number. Let me see. Maybe that can be our out. that can be our field trip. Maybe we should weekend. like maybe you and I should take Enter into the Harris concert movie. <laughs> no, so absolutely funny. not. <laughs> and then we'll go see Oppenheimer afterwards. <laughs> no. Well, I'd be down to watch Oppenheimer again. Uh, the only movie I'm interested in watching is the Napoleon release, which happens on November 22nd, <laughs> 23 days after this is released. And I am. Yeah, I will go to. The, I will go dressed in a costume. Oh, is that over Thanksgiving break? Is that? It might be worth the price of admission. Yeah, I think so. I would go. We can do a field trip. <laughs> I'm going to be so happy. Anyway, yeah. How am Anyways, I? Um, are you I'm, I'm wonderful. Yeah. I am on fall break. It just began. A whole week. Never in my educational career. Yeah. It's a week. Oh, it's a week? This is the first time mm-hmm. in my entire career that I've, one, had a fall break, much less a full week off. This is, it's, it's kind of weird, wow. I'll be honest. At this time of year, I'm just not used to it. But oh, I'm just so glad. Mm. So anyway, and it's starting off wonderfully. The weather outside is glorious. We should be recording this outdoors. Uh, is it? A, it is a day for kings and queens. Oh, yeah. um, our kids were in town. Uh, we're coming through town, so we went and met them uh, for brunch just earlier today. Mm. We sat outside uh, on the patio seating. Oh my gosh, it was almost chilly in the shade like it oh it's just so nice outside um Mm. anyway yes so i am doing well i have nothing to grade over the break well done by me yay yes well orchestrated it's kind of by accident but i'll take it uh yeah yeah, i'm doing great got to hug my my granddaughter this morning so all is good yeah nothing spooky about that wonderful aha Mm -hmm. that's called a segue So, so what's the plan for today? Uh, you mean how are we going to do it or what are we going to do? No, just like what's, what's the episode going to be about today? Oh, we we're talking about spooky philosophers. So what's, what's the idea behind this? Well, it's Halloween, Andrew. <laughs> Am I I'm missing something clearly? Get in the spirit. No, I, I'm just, I'm just, since we've never done this, I just want to know like, what's the game plan for today? Well, the game plan mm-hmm. is to talk about well, okay, so the the three of us chose two philosophers each that we didn't really have any criteria per mm-hmm. se. We're, we're saying spooky. Um, that can mean all kinds of things. Like, like mm-hmm. uh, I, it's this is this isn't one of mine. Uh, it, this person was a backup, but the philosopher Heraclitus died in a gruesome way. So that was going to be one of mine. He was devoured by a pack mm-hmm. of dogs. No way. So he wasn't necessarily creepy himself necessarily that i know of but anyway the way he died uh was you know a bit gruesome so so i'd be it's gonna be really interesting to see what the three of us came up with because yeah i was, I was we were like hey it's halloween let's mm-hmm. do an episode with spooky philosophers yeah okay 
That sounds fun. Mm. Who wants to go first? Am I going first? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I switched off the camera for a second. I looked at notes. Did we do nose goes? <laughs> Andrew did. I did nose goes. Oh, well, then I guess I'm starting. Okay, I will start. All right, let's begin. Let's go way, way back in time to classical Greece. And my first spooky philosopher is Diogenes the Cynic. He was born, well, we're not really exactly sure when he was born, but he died uh, in 323 BC, which means he was a contemporary of Plato. So anyway, why do you guys think I chose Diogenes? Any clues? Does it have to do with his cynicism? Well, he was just a very eccentric fellow. Let's put it that way. You guys know much about Diogenes? This may be... Okay. No, I don't. Oh, oh boy. This would be a real education. Okay. So Diogenes, this guy was the ultimate troll. Um, <laughs> he was, he was, he's great. Like if you want to think about like the person who's just the most, I don't know, like always pointing out things that are wrong, like in a sarcastic way, it's kind of like a, a social critic. Diogenes just called out everybody on everything. The wealthy people, especially wealthy people, he called out customs and and uh, and traditions and things like that. But he also like lived these things out. He just just didn't like shout it out on you know Greek social media or whatever. So, <laughs> but now all that to say, I, I I did think I don't want to like misrepresent these philosophers when I'm talking about them. Um, mm -hmm. I, I chose the other one's Kierkegaard. Now, Diogenes is, he, I mean, he is a very interesting character. Let's put it that way. Uh, he is, however, really well respected amongst some of the other schools that developed around this time, especially Stoicism. Uh, he did have a huge emphasis on, on, uh, on virtue and the pursuit of virtue, uh, but especially mm -hmm. simplicity and also authenticity. Like he just, it just, uh, you know, people following the pack just drove him nuts. He, um, he viewed like the world was just corrupted by materialism and hypocrisy. And so he just called this stuff out. So let me tell you the ways that he called this stuff out. All right. So this is how I think he's, this is my best, uh, you know, attempt at making him spooky. He's definitely, <laughs> he's definitely a bit off color. Okay. First of all, he slept in a large ceramic jar or barrel, depending on how you want to translate that, in the streets. He did not own a house. He just like set up shop right there in the middle of uh, the Agora or the nearby. And he just lived his life in this barrel because he said possessions, materialism, all that stuff was empty. And so I'm going to live that out. And he was always dressed in, I mean, when he was dressed, he was always dressed in very tattered clothing. No doubt he smelled, I'm sure. Um, he was, <laughs> his hair was matted. He was not an attractive figure, but that's what he was calling out. He's like, none of this stuff matters. That's all surface business. I can like live in a jar. And as long as I'm, as long as I'm, uh, you know, living virtuously, then, uh, then I'm, I'm fulfilling my, my duty as a human, you know? So he really lived this out. He did a lot of other things. <laughs> Now we get into the really weird stuff. He would, uh, again, with like customs, <clears throat> he would urinate in public. Uh, often uh, is like reported that sometimes he would urinate on other people because he's like, this is just a natural function of the body. And he would also defecate 
in uh, in public. Apparently, you he have the other one he would do. Apparently, too? I'm getting to it. And apparently, okay. he uh, he wants uh, to uh, defecated in the middle of a theater production. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving Taylor's face right now. Oh, it's going to get worse. I'm going to say it. Here we go. He would also <laughs> in public. Oh, yeah, I did it. Okay. Because he's like, nah, this is just a part of, uh, hmm. you know, human nature. And <laughs> now how this guy, I mean, I don't, I don't know how he stayed in town. I don't know how the authorities didn't run him out of town. I don't know some sort of decency laws or something. But his point was, hey, this is just natural. He did some other yep. funny things. Now, a lot of these stories are really apocryphal. We're not entirely sure of their authenticity per se, but there's just a lot of them from various sources. Another one, I love this one. He would carry a lantern around during the daytime, claiming to be searching for one honest man, but could never find one. Like, that's good prop comedy. <laughs> that's good prop comedy. <laughs> Where did he get the lantern from? I can just see him like walking around in his tattered clothing in the daylight with a lantern. Someone's like, yeah. he's just waiting for, he's like waiting for someone to come over. Like, Diogenes, what are you doing? He had his response ready. That's spooky. I'm just looking for one honest man. Oh, it's something. I'm going to give you a few more. <gasps> there's more. Plato ref- oh, there's more. Oh, there's God. more. Uh, no, not, I, I mean, I've gone through the worst part. <laughs> he, but he has some funny things, right? So the, so the searching for one honest man is pretty funny, I think. Here's another one. Uh, in Plato's Academy, Plato attempted to characterize humanity using the definition of his teacher, Socrates, where Socrates said humans were, in his words, featherless bipeds. So on hearing the news, apparently Diogenes brought a plucked chicken to the academy, announcing that he had found Plato's human. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> oh, gosh. He brought a plucked chicken. Uh, Andrew, you're not even smiling. Yeah, he's... Am I not selling you on this? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, <laughs> I think he's funny. <laughs> okay <laughs> okay a few more uh plato did refer to him as socrates gone mad but the the last two stories i have have to do with alexander the great and the first one of these is pretty famous apparently alexander the great came to town i don't know about the validity of that especially with the timelines but anyway apparently alexander the great looked at this poor man sitting in a barrel in tatters and uh, asked him if there was anything that he could do for him and Diogenes responded by saying, yes, you could please step out of my sunlight. So there was that one. <laughs> wait, wait, yes, but did yes, you, do you know the follow-up? No, no, please tell me. He says, if I was not Alexander, I would wish to be Diogenes. Oh, <laughs> that's great. I'm telling you, man, this guy yeah. was witty. This guy was witty. Yeah. And the last one I had is another version of the story. Where he meets with Alex. Well, wait, 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 wait. I still have the, the there's the follow-up line to Alexander. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so, so if Alexander said, you know, if, if I was not Alexander, I'd wish to be Diogenes. And then Diogenes said back to him, if I was not Diogenes, I'd still want to be Diogenes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the burdens of leadership was uh, weighing on Alexander. He's like, I just want to live in a barrel. <laughs> I'm gonna live in a barrel. It looks so attractive. I can pee wherever I want. <laughs> Wear whatever I want. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for the follow-up, Andrew. All right, this last one yeah. I got is uh, another another story with Alexander the Great. So apparently, Diogenes is scrounging around in a trash pile, which included human bones. I don't know. Anyway, when Alexander asked what he was doing, Diogenes said, 
I am searching for the bones of your father, but cannot distinguish them from those of his slaves. Boom, <laughs> mic drop. Yeah. It's the, that's pretty great. It's the classic meme where it's like they it's like four skeletons. You're like, this person's white, this person's black, this person's Hispanic, this person and you know, it's like uh where this person's a uh, Christian, this person's an atheist. And and mm -hmm. you know, underneath it all, we're just skeletons. Woo, which is very spooky. So spooky. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know this this story about what uh, what he wanted to do when he died with his with his skeleton? No, or with his body. I did not run into he this. He said, he said, throw my body outside the city wall so all the creatures can feast on it. Oh yeah, and that's good. And then and then they asked, uh, you don't care that uh, you know you don't care that all these creatures are going to be eating me. And he says, well, as long as you give me a stick to fin them off with. I won't care. <laughs> and then they say, well, how can you use the stick uh, to fin them off? And he says, well, if, I do, if I'm not able to figure out to fin them off or if I'm not able to care, then why should I care about what happens to me when I die? <laughs> Very spooky, right? Thinking a lot dude. about bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was intense, dude. I like him. I like him a lot. Uh, speaking of which, I've not read this book, but there is a recent book that came out, I want to say, this year. Um, it's called uh, The Dangerous Life and Ideas of Diogenes the Cynic. And Taylor, I put in our show notes those names of the authors who are in French. Could you pronounce them, please? Oh, sure. My French is kind of rusty, but uh, Jean. That's yeah, better than mine. Manuel Robineau um, mm -hmm. and Philippe Mitsis. That's my Sounds best good to me. go at it. But yeah, there's, there's Diogenes the Cynic. He is certainly a, a person of interest. He is always brought up when you're talking about uh, classical Greek philosophers. So he's not just a guy who sits in the barrel and like pees on people. Um, <laughs> apparently, he's, uh, he's, he's a person of interest. And I think this book uh, exemplifies that. And there is a famous painting, is it by David? Um, of Herac uh, not Heraclitus, of, um, of Diogenes in a barrel. Um, yeah, and there's also, uh, yeah, I have heard of that, but if you're not, mm. you know, in New York or France or whatever, there's also a very famous one in Houston. Mm. Well, it's not famous, but there's a really? depiction of, of him. Yeah, of Diogenes in, at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston where uh, Alexander's standing in the sun. And um, what? And uh, I've been there like eight yeah. times. Did we see that, Mr. I'm, Parsons? I, yeah. I'm sure we saw it. Yeah, I'm sure. Huh. Well, that's cool. I'll look for huh. it next time I'm there. Yeah. All right. Someone pointed it out to me one time, and I was like, oh, wow. Hmm. That's cool. That is cool. That is cool. All right, I got the painter. His name is... Is it David? No. Well, there's many paintings now, it turns out. Mm. Never mind. <laughs> I'll do more research and get back to you. Oh, wait. Here we go. Jean no, oh, no, it's no, French. No. Great. Jean-Léon <laughs> Germain. I don't know. G-E, there's so many accents marks on this guy. Now we just sound like, you know, pretentious jerks, not wanting to, not pronouncing, <laughs> making fun of. Uh, hey, who is this? Here, I'm putting it in the, I'm putting in the show notes. Here it comes. Jean-Léon Jérôme. There it is. What do you think, Taylor? Jean-Léon Jérôme. The Jean -Léon. M would be emphasized there because there's no accent over the E. Jean the second E. God, I'm so glad you're on this podcast. All right. <laughs> excellent. Well, anyway, there's my first spooky philosopher, Diogenes the Cynic. Give it up for Diogenes. Mm -hmm. Imagine. That's pretty yeah, spooky. Yeah, the bones are great. I like the yeah. bones. And how, how did they not like 
put him on trial if they put socrates, socrates on this guy's trial going at it with himself in for the just street. like walking uh, around yeah right yeah it's a good it's it's very how is that not question. more annoying than socrates going and being like i think hey, people thought he was a lunatic. Sure lunatic how would you not think he's a lunatic well yeah do any of you know what uh cynic the cynic greek word what that means i cannot recall off the top of my head no. kinikos i believe mm-hmm. uh, i'm wondering if this is why they didn't throw him out it means dog-like oh I thought Diogenes mm. meant dog-like. So is it cynic huh. that means dog-like? I, I think I'm pretty sure it's oh, cynicos. Okay. Hmm. And so I'm wondering if they thought he was like a lunatic who just acted like a dog. Yeah. Oh, they may have thought, thought he was cool. <laughs> I don't know. That's like, curious. You know, some, some Malaysians or uh, Corinthians show up and they're like, hey, guys, we got something to show you. It's like a little, you know, instead of monuments and temples and stuff, they're like, we got Diogenes. Mm. <laughs> Spooky. I'll give you a, I'll give you a hint, okay? The, this person, not their own work, but their work analyzed by a later philosopher, spurned the term or the study called hauntology. 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 Like haunting. Like haunt. Haunt. Hauntology. Oh, with a T. Or haunt. Hauntology. Hauntology. Well, haunt. Hauntology. <laughs> Okay, anthology. <laughs> okay, uh, well, that's no good clue for me. Uh, do you know, Taylor? I do not okay. know. Yeah, I just I found this in my research. I, I did not know this, but the um, the philosopher is Karl Marx, all right. the most mm. destructive philosopher uh, of all time. <laughs> the The hauntology comes from uh, another. I think he's a Frenchman. I'm pretty sure Derrida. <laughs> Derrida. <laughs> And uh, Jacques Jacques Derrida, uh, who mm. I think its book is The Specters of Marx, but I, I'm not sure. That's not my guy. Came up with this phrase. In, it's in reference to the first line of Karl Marx. Okay. Is, Which is? Um, Communist mm-hmm. Manifesto. Do you all know Probably. this? Some of the proletariat. It's a specter is haunting Europe. Mm. Oh, it's a great a opening line. specter is haunting Europe. And that specter is, mm-hmm. yeah, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic opening line. Uh, so that's one reason that I uh, wanted to choose uh, Old Carl because I think that's a cool that's a cool opening line. And that specter, I think, is communism. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the rest of the line, uh, which is kind of funny. Well, another my that was my first reason for choosing Marx. My second reason for choosing Marx is: Have you all ever seen a picture? Oh of yeah, him? he's pretty spooky. No. Yeah, you haven't seen a picture. He's pretty spooky. Uh, Taylor. Well, I bet, maybe I, I have. I bet you look uh, at the classic marks. I'm sure you have. Like, oh yeah, that guy. Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, he's. You should. You should I mean, check like him Santa. out. Okay, let me Google. He looks like oh, Santa. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I have seen him. Yeah, and I think his kids used to call him Saint Nick, or his grandkids, or his uh, nephews mm. and nieces, or someone, uh, but because he had this long flowing beard, um, and yeah, he's super spooky. Uh, and he talks, he uses so many death and, and resurrection, but not good resurrection. Uh, he, he uses in, he uses, what's the one where it's, uh, it's like not the resurrection of living people. It's the resurrection of dead people. Necromancy or something. Yeah. Necromancy. Oh. Yeah. Necromancy. He says that uh, in the book Capital, uh, which is uh, the first volume, 
well, there's three volumes. The first volume, I, I think it's in, he says, uh, capital money is, is, is necromancy that surrounds the products of labor. <laughs> okay. So he's, he's, uh, he's very, uh, very akin to using specter creepy analogies in his work. So I thought that was pretty cool. Karl Marx, he's most famous for being, uh, I think, wrongly attributed to being a philosopher of economics, mm-hmm. when he's really more of a sociologist mm-hmm. who's looking at uh, different class struggles, class divides, mm-hmm. he's looking at class and the relationships between classes. But he does have a, a very interesting book called, well, it's a three-volume series called Capital, which is a, a book that really goes, like it's, massive. it's huge, uh, even yeah. one book. Yeah, even one book is huge. So he was working on that. It took him 10 years to write the first volume. I'm sorry if I'm getting these wrong. They might be in disorder, but it took him like 10 years to write the first volume, 30 years to write the second volume. And he finished He finished the book, or he didn't finish the book. The last one is um, put together by his contemporaries mm-hmm. uh, from notes mm-hmm. that he had uh, in other natures. And funnily enough, I mean, it's not, it's not that similar to uh, our last Diogenes the Cynic, but his thesis was on a similar Greek philosopher on Epicurus. Yeah. Uh, his his uh, his last one, his thesis was the difference between the Democritian and Epicurean philosophy of nature. So that's kind of funny. I think that he's 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 looking way back into Greek philosophy for uh, some inspiration when he was studying. Maybe I'll be the next socialist philosopher or something uh but unlikely uh so so what do you all know about marx just off the top of your head well where have you well, heard him gee <laughs> in my own personal experience uh i have heard his name invoked by uh individuals who are critical of public education but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's funny oh, yeah that's funny it's a hoot but outside of that, uh, Marx, of, of course, is incredibly polarizing just because he's cited as the person who really was responsible for communism. And of mm-hmm. course, that was played out in real time in the Russian Revolution. And it's all, as they say, history from there. But yeah, I, I used to teach Karl Marx. Well, I used to teach Communist Manifesto when I taught world history, mm. for obvious reasons, I think. And uh yeah, that's about all I know of him. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I knew much mm-hmm. about him, honestly, before I, I don't know, started studying history formally. Mm-hmm. Well, how about you, Taylor? We talked about him actually on Friday in one of my classes, my world cultures mm-hmm. class. We're studying the kind of enlightenment period in Europe. And we talked about him just generally and read like a couple excerpts mm-hmm. about how he talks about religion as like the opium of the people oh, yeah. and that all history is just a class struggle and that like the common people, the proletariat that produces something should unite against the upper echelons of the society and government. Like many great writers, his writing is is provocative. It evokes mm-hmm. a lot of emotion. Um, it's well written. It's it's written to be like, you know, zingers. I mean, here's that opening line, Andrew, I pulled it up. A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise the specter. So, you know, I mean, just listen to that language. It's great. Yeah. And I think, I think um, the Communist Manifesto, it's, it's a short book. It is. It's, it's rather accessible. Uh, you can find it. I mean, it's so funny. 
it's so funny to me. I don't know why, but you can find all of these communist works in all of not only the communist works like a uh, capital and um, you know the communist manifesto on online because they're over a hundred years old, regardless, etc. But also a lot of communist organizations put them online for free, which mm-hmm. which I always think is funny. Mm-hmm. But that one's pretty accessible, I think. But it doesn't really discuss. Uh, it was meant to be accessible. Accessible. Yeah, it's it's meant mm-hmm. to be a pamphlet for the common people, mm-hmm. and it's not. It's he's not going in in that book, which surprised me when I first was trying to go through it. It doesn't really go through his theory or, or really the philosophy behind class struggle and economics. Uh, his his kind of outline of economic history, which he does in Capital which is a much better work, uh, but it's not very accessible. And, and I'll give you a resource in a minute uh, if you're interested in going through that. But essentially what he's he's doing is he's looking at, like you said, Taylor, he's looking at the history of class struggle um, as brought upon by struggle, human struggle, and really the exploitation of labor. And that's through underpaid or unpaid work, essentially. Uh, and that's going to drive you know a lot of class divide especially we should do an episode on this but it's so complicated so i'm not going to even try to try to go into this now but i think that well (laughs) i don't i don't even want to go in and try to explain anything because we don't have enough time and he's so controversial Uh, but let me give you i found five facts from uh this cool website called fee stories fee stories Uh, i'll just give five fun facts about him because i think they're pretty cool one of them i especially like the first one is when he was a young guy in university studying, he was really into Hegel, uh, who I was going to pick as another really freaky philosopher, just the way he looks (laughs) and some things he said. (laughs) Yeah, he got in a lot of fights around his views on religion and politics and economics as a young guy. So he he got drunk a lot in school and he fought a lot of duels. Uh, So I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, Secondly, (laughs) he basically never had a country after he left Mm. Prussia in 1842. Uh, No country would accept him. Mm. He moved to England when he was publishing. And even, this is a fun fact for us, he was considering moving to Texas in 1843. Yeah. Yeah, he was, but that was the Republic of Texas back then. And he applied to, um, he applied, I think, for for citizenship there. I don't know what happened with that, but I thought that was cool. Interesting. He was super poor when he was dying, or when he was an old man, uh, and his wife once pawned his own pants to buy foods. Mm. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, his his wife, <laughs> his wife said, or his mom said, or his wife said, uh, if only uh, Marx made money instead of just writing about it. Uh, so that was pretty <laughs> funny. Fourth fun fact: a fellow communist once tried to kill him for not being radical enough. <laughs> Mm. So I thought that was funny. Uh, and then last one, and this is kind of a sad fact, he died broke and only 11 people attended his funeral. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's it for Marx. I'll say, uh, you know, Marx is his own kind of ghost. He he continues he's to He's around. Haunt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's everywhere. Uh, and then when you throw the ism on the end of it, uh, people, oh, yeah. people people throw that, that term around without even really knowing what it means. And yeah. if you do know what it means, then, then that's great. Throw it around all you want. But it, it's like some of the like many words, um, you know, pe- another one is fascist. People throw that word around. Yeah, and mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, for what sure. fascism is, they think it's the same 100%. thing as communism. And I'm just like, 100%. Uh, so anyway, Marx, Marx is uh, 
misrepresented often. But, you know, I always talk about, I think he's a product of his time. Uh, he, he, he wrote Communist Manifesto, I think, in 1850. And we're right smack dab in the middle of the British Industrial Revolution. Oh, yeah. At that point, no labor laws. No labor laws have been mm-hmm. passed. You know, all the horrors you hear about the Industrial Revolution with like eight-year-olds working in factories and 16-hour days and living in hovels and all this sort of stuff. Like, if it, if it wasn't Marx, it would have been someone else. Yeah. And, uh, he was like the Luther. Mm-hmm. He's like the Luther of um, capitalism. Like, uh, let me say one thing. If you are interested in learning more about Marx, there's this guy who's a British philosopher, academic named David Harvey, I think. Uh, And he is like the preeminent Marx scholar in the world or academic around Marx. And he has about 15 years. I'm not sure, but he has a lot of resources around reading Marx Capital. Like he's the foremost scholar in the world. Uh, he has on his website called davidharvey.org courses that he has at his university. Filming of him in a seminar reading Capital One, Capital Two, Marx's Grundreisse. Um, and he has his own books on there for free and reading groups around them. And he has all the years that he's done these seminars online for free. So it's a really great resource. I, he's like the world's premier. Mark Scholar. So that's a really great resource. He's the man. Yeah. All right, Taylor. Well, we're tossing the football your way. Time for your first spooky philosopher. My first spooky philosopher is Spinoza. Do y'all know who he is? Uh, peripherally. Okay. Do y'all have any guesses as to why I picked him? Yes. I don't. I'm, I know he's Jewish. Um, I know he had mm-hmm. he uh, wrote a lot about religion. He comes up yeah. in my yes, religious studies every now and then. Yeah, that's about as much as I know about him too. I think he came from a Portuguese family, um, and he was writing in the very early Enlightenment. So he's born in the 1630s, and then died just before 1680. So he was writing at like kind of when the Enlightenment kicks off in Europe, and he was extremely, extremely, extremely radical. And he started writing when he was very young and was very well learned. But then he starts contesting against the church like you see a lot of radical enlightenment philosophers do. And he came after Descartes. And if you know about Descartes, he was fairly radical for at least that time with his ideas of mind-body dualism and the senses are unreliable. Mm -hmm. And then Spinoza comes and he's like, okay, Descartes went this far, but he didn't go far enough. So he takes all of Descartes' ideas and he's like, no, the senses are entirely unreliable and has a lot of these very interesting and difficult to grasp metaphysical concepts about humanity that like there's only one physical substance or one substance and that's God or like a divine figure. All humans are just modes of the divine. Mm. And breaks all of that down. But the way he writes, do y'all know this, how he writes? I think you've told me. I think. Go ahead. Yes. He writes in the style of a geometric proof. Yeah. That's cool. So if you remember from back in geometry, when you have your premise or your claim and then your evidence and how you support that, that's how he writes philosophy. So reading it alone and trying to decipher what he's saying is very spooky it's a spooky endeavor (laughs) 
and he'll define his terms and you have to like keep going back to the terms and trying to parse together what he means and just pouring over it. But if you can think of how much Descartes seems to have upset things, Spinoza is like turning the fire up, turning the heat on the fire or like putting gasoline on the fire that was Europe in the Enlightenment period. And of course, the European governments hated him, absolutely hated him. The churches hated him because he's contesting the whole biblical premise of religion, saying that, like a lot of other radical philosophers, that there were no miracles because they defy the laws of nature. Mm -hmm. So Jesus didn't exist as a savior. He was just a man, and none of the miracles happened. They were all just people maybe twisting what had happened or using events for their own gain. And a lot of his work was banned almost immediately. Mm. Once it started circulating, it got banned and pulled off of shelves and not put into libraries. For a while, he was able to garner some following with academics, but he was ultimately that kind of disbanded as people were either like imprisoned or they passed away or they encountered other philosophers or religious people that were able to change their perspective. But I think part of the reason I find him spooky is one, because he's so difficult to understand, like notor notoriously difficult to read and to process. But he was also like this looming shadow in Europe that they kept trying to chip away at and mm. to get away and he just wouldn't stop. Mm. But then we kind of see how he impacts us today. Yeah. And you see kind of remnants of his philosophy and other people about like, I don't know, taking away miracles and how divine things fit into the laws of nature. Yeah, he had a real deistic conception of God, if I recall, mm -hmm. which of yeah. course doing away with miracles fits in with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, you know, I always thought like, ah, Spinoza, that's such a cool name. Like if I, mm -hmm. if I could like, you know, go to philosophy parties and be like, oh, hey, let's talk about Spinoza. They'd be like, mm -hmm. oh, I've only heard of him. But he has a cool name. Mm -hmm. uh, then I thought I'd be cool by, by default. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're going to philosophy parties, that's probably a ship long sailed. Uh, yeah, oh. I don't know that I've ever been to a philosophy party. I wonder what that'd be like. Have you been to philosophy mm -hmm. parties? Is that a thing? Philosophy parties? Oh, no. Andrew? Maybe. Yes. They're academic oh. conferences. Oh, uh, well, that's not a party. Does everyone go like to the bar afterwards and we're like, let's get metaphysical. Oh, yeah. That's a thing. <laughs> that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, that that was a thing that my, uh, one of my classes actually did that every, like it was a once a week seminar and then they would just go oh to the, the bar afterwards. Yeah. It's pretty, like it was a pretty cool idea. Huh. Yeah, I think I think that's a thing. And then like all of the uh, all of the philosophy department, at least at Rice, would come together like every day after school and drink together, which is kind of sad. <laughs> that's pretty sad. But they, I, I guess that's how they would, you know, have fun. And so props to them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right. Well, Spinoza, anything else on Spinoza? Um, I do think that he's interesting mm -hmm. in that. In some ways, in his ethics, he tries to keep an element of human divinity and like a higher purpose or higher goal to humanity mm -hmm. in a mechanistic worldview. And for as much as he disregards 
divinity of God or like a personal God, mm -hmm. he still keeps some of that. And I think that's an interesting thing to notice that you can throw off as much of the old old ideas as you can, but some of it still lingers. It's interesting. Do you know if he influenced yeah. Hegel? Either of you, do you know if he influenced he Hegel? It sounds like something that would influence Hegel. Mm -hmm. He what he did. Hegel said. Hegel said something about him. He said, hmm. "What did he say?" I think he said something like, "You're either you either believe that Spinoza was correct, or you're not a real philosopher." Something to that extent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So that's pretty funny. And Einstein also said something about the way that. I think Einstein believed that Spinoza's account of God was correct or something like that. He thought that he I can see that. He, he believed in Spinoza's God. Yeah. So that's cool. Influential mm -hmm. guy. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, very influential. Oh, here's the uh, here's the quote. You wanna hear it? Yeah. To be a follower of Spinoza is essential. You're either a Spinozaist or not a philosopher at all. There you go. It was quite <laughs> That was quite accurate, Andrew. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. That's well, I guess that means it's my turn, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's on you. So just like sidebar thing uh, that I was thinking about while I was putting this together is oftentimes when we think of scary individuals, individuals in scary stories and stuff like that, they usually have a degree of mental illness of some of some variety. Mm. And I wanted to be really sensitive to that, like trying to come up with something kind of spooky, but also not something spooky as a result of someone's mental illness or neurodivergency or anything like that, right? So I say all this next stuff uh, with my next philosopher with that in mind, and I chose Soren Kierkegaard. That's right, the originator <laughs> of, philosophy, of uh, existentialism in Europe. I'm going to I'm going to cast him as uh, you know a lost lorn lover. Right. So here we go. He haunted the streets of Copenhagen with <laughs> heartbroken over his <laughs> his fiance or his former fiance, Regina Olson. So here's the story if you don't know. So Kierkegaard, he lived from 1813 to 1855. Uh, he died young. He was uh, engaged to Regina Olson in 1840. It lasted about a year. Now, Kierkegaard came from a bourgeois class, his parents or his family was involved in shipping, which was very lucrative at the time, especially in Copenhagen. So he had lots of money, but uh, but not nobility. A lot of his a lot of his family died young. He was just kind of alone by the time he got to, you know, his mid thirties. Everyone had died. But in those types of circles, engagements are really important, especially back then. And so he became mm. engaged to a woman by the name of Regina Olson. They were engaged for about a year, and then famously. And I mean, like there's books and I don't know, there may even be movies about this. He broke his engagement with her, but remained romantically devoted to her for the rest of his life. So let me explain all like why that happened. Kierkegaard, he broke the engagement with her for a number of reasons that are kind of deduced by his letters and his books. His relationship with Regina is like indirectly mentioned in a number of his books, like either ors is one of them. But also he wrote something like, I don't know, pages of journals that he left behind. He just wrote mm -hmm. and wrote and wrote. And he never, I mean, he sometimes, oh, and letters too. Uh, people have, have letters from him. Anyway, here they are. One is that, of course, he thought this relationship would be a distraction from his intellectual 
and spiritual pursuits. Um, he was an incredibly devout Christian. And that's actually one of the reasons he didn't feel that he could really be fully devoted to Regina because his spiritual pursuits were so intense. He didn't know if he would be able to devote to her enough of himself that he you know, thought would be satisfactory, but also his intellectual pursuits. Like I said, he just wrote and wrote and wrote. Mm. Another thing, he was definitely somewhat neurotic. He was depressive, very melancholic, uh, and highly introspective. And so he had lots of doubts about his ability to fully commit to a lifelong relationship and just constantly just worried over that. I think the, the term we use these days is thought spirals. Well, he was just one big spiral. Like an extension of that, Kierkegaard may have worried that his own struggles with mental and emotional health would like negatively impact Regina's life. So he believed that ending the engagement was a way to protect her from these potential hardships. But he like really, and this is like, you know, the lost love business, like he really, he really cared for her happiness, which sounds ironic. And, and in trying to care for his, her happiness, she was so distraught at him breaking the engagement he would write her these really cold letters so that she would feel like he just didn't like her. And so this, mm. the breaking of this engagement just had to happen. And it was in her best interest when, a, when he loved her tremendously, but he just didn't think he could commit. So that's kind of hard. But the other thing is like the city of Copenhagen at that time was very small. I mean, it was, it was big for a city of that time, but it was, it was closely knit, if that makes sense. Uh, city walls. Mm. It's a it's a city built on water. It's there on the North uh, North Sea. Am I right? Up there in Europe, everyone kind of knew everybody, and people from multiple classes like knew other people from multiple classes. Like it was a tight knit community. So breaking this engagement was not just some private matter between Kierkegaard and Regina Olsen and her family. Like it was considerable gossip uh, throughout the city of Copenhagen. Lots of attention. Newspapers, you know, would write about it. They would they would do little cartoons. Um, it was a big deal to break an engagement in the 19th century, and especially one in a community as tight knit as that. They attended the same church, so they saw each other the t- all the time. It was rough. It was rough. But he never like let go of his his love for her. Um, That's so, so sad. It, it is so. So let me let me sad. tell you some of these like these things. One, he took he took the engagement ring that had five diamonds in it, and he fashioned it into a new ring in the shape of a cross, and he wore that ring for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. He continued to financially support Regina and her family after they after he broke the engagement, and uh, she did eventually marry. And even after she married, uh, mm-hmm. their their relationship continued it was it was very cordial How silly and uh you know they, they, they kind of made up in a way you know but it, it was very cordial mm-hmm. uh they, they would exchange letters occasionally and he even tried to leave his estate to her and i've read conflicting reports uh that two sources said that she rejected his estate and one said that her husband refused his estate but regina and her husband eventually mm-hmm. moved they came over to the new world and i can't remember what island they they went to not jamaica but down there in the caribbean and she was mm-hmm. 80 something when she died 83 i think so she lived like four decades after after kierkegaard had passed away but anyway it's a tragic love story he just always pined for her if you want to like try to make it spooky you know you can be like the obsessive lover but 
Anyway, if you're looking for some sources on that, there's a book called uh, A Keeper of Love's Flame, Regina Olson and Soren Kierkegaard uh, by Morton Jensen. And then a, a more recent biography on Soren Kierkegaard. It's called Kierkegaard, Philosopher of the Heart by Claire Carlyle. So there you go. That's my bit on on Kierkegaard. Yeah, I, we can also direct people to our Kierkegaard episode, but I don't remember which one, mm-hmm. which number that is. <laughs> I don't know. It was for, it was year one, so it's in the teens. It yeah, be in the it was, teens. We also we oh, did also right. do an episode on sickness unto death a that's couple right. months ago. I don't know. He's a, that one is a good work. He's a pod favorite, I think. Mm-hmm. That was a very like he's an interesting person personally, and his his philosophy is uh, very emotional. Mm-hmm. and intense so a lot of people find it compelling and he has a cool name he does have a yeah. cool name mm-hmm. he does have a cool name i'm so excited to share this loss this my last one with y'all um have you ever heard of nick mm-hmm. bostrom mm-hmm. i've heard and that's that's about it okay nick bostrom if you if you uh look him up for one he looks really creepy sorry uh nick <laughs> if you're listening because he is still alive. He is um, oh. he's a modern philosopher living right now. He's Swedish, I think. Uh, and mm. he is very, very prominent in science fiction-y philosophy. And what I mean oh. by that is avenues like artificial intelligence, mm. kind of neuro neuroscience, philosophy of neuroscience in terms of mm-hmm. uh, what's whole brain emulation, which is essentially taking our consciousness, uploading it to a computer, and also in um, AI threat. Or did I talk about that one? The threat of AI. I think that's what he's been focusing on recently. And then probably the most famous one is simulation theory. Okay. Mm. So he is the guy who influenced a lot of um, matrixy kind of thought. I think that he, I think he's kind of going to be rising in philosophy over the next probably 15 years as we're dealing more with AI because he was thinking about this stuff way before maybe not way before but I think before it was in the limelight he was he was thinking about mm-hmm. super intelligence and what would happen if a super intelligent computer existed what that would look like what what are the ethics behind that and how we should be responding to that um, and so I think that's pretty cool he's also he also uh, is thinking a lot about, well, I talked about it a little bit, but um, the ethics around AI, how should we create AI um, that is most ethical uh, in the sense that it won't kill us uh, if it um, <laughs> if it ever comes to that level. Uh, and, and so he's been influencing a lot of, I don't know if they're celebrities, but they're kind of people in the limelight. They're technocrats, basically. Mm. Uh, Elon Musk, Bill Gates. So th- those are the two big ones who have been really influenced by his work. I, I know Elon Musk is really worried. He created this open AI thing in response to Google, like the Google's deep mind after he thought they didn't, they weren't worried around the ethics behind it. And so I, I don't know if Elon Musk or Bill Gates have publicly mentioned Nick Bostrom, but they've like, there's no doubt in my mind uh, that they've read him and have been influenced by him. But also, other like, there's been two philosophers who have spoken about him and his importance Peter Singer and Derek Parfit. Mm-hmm. Derek Parfit's a philosopher of mind, I believe. Yeah, covered him in class this week. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, and Stephen Hawking also talked about mm. him as a, like mm. one of the most important fl- modern philosophers. Their big thing is not that he's like some genius. It's just that he is offering something that philosophers aren't thinking about that's important. So I think that's that's why I picked him, because he's talking about scary things. <laughs> Our AI overlords? Mm. Our AI overlords is one. Personally, what freaks me out is this mind uploading idea. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, digital sentence is what he calls yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that freaks me out for some reason. But, but he's talked a lot about that. Uh, he also, well, I won't talk about that one, but that one's cool. I think one that is really interesting and I think that is important uh, is called, um, what's it called? The Ethics of Human Enhancement. Mm. And so the idea behind mm-hmm. that is like, how should we think about, well, enhancing ourselves with... AI technology. There's companies right now whose job it is basically to implant chips in our brains and to, well, one, it will help people who have like, who are paralyzed. It might stimulate. Oh, sure. Or epilepsy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. Yep. So, so, so these are the ethical ways around it, but then there's some, it's kind of a slippery slope in his, his mind. He thinks that how much should we change humans if we are able to there's some sense that we have an obligation to help people like this who who want the help. Mm-hmm. But in one ways, uh, how far should we go changing our own bodies? Mm-hmm. So kind of a cyberpunk, cyberpunk kind of uh, thoughts around that. But what I think is really freaky is that he thinks and he argues that it's extremely likely that we're living in a simulation. Oh, and this yeah. is his this is his most famous paper. So just before I Maybe tell you all about it. that's where I know him from. Probably Students are all this about is... this. They love the whole simulation argument. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. This is actually probably got got me interested in philosophy first. Now that I think mm. about it, I tried to read this paper ten years ago or something, uh, and I couldn't. Uh, but uh, what do y'all think about simulations? Do you think it's likely? No. No, <laughs> I don't. Um, but if but if it was, then uh, I wouldn't really know any difference. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just don't get too worried about it. Could it be a yeah. simulation? Sure, it depends on what you mean by simulation. Does it mean like we're like we're in a Sims game or something? Uh, no, I don't believe anything like that. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not a game. So he he lays out three premises that he thinks one of which is very likely. The first is that um, humans are unable to reach a stage where they could create some kind of simulation that's as advanced um, that could replicate our experiences inside of that simulation. Okay, does that make sense Mm -hmm. uh, for there? Mm -hmm. So so that's one, that that's very unlikely um, to happen. The second one is that humanity has a very little interest in running some kind of simulation where they could see their past or see humanity evolve or something to this extent. Okay. Um, So humans either think it's morally wrong to do so, or they're just uninterested, but they have reached that stage of ability. Okay. And then the last one is that basically it's very likely that there is a simulation ongoing that we might be a part of where our experiences that we're living in can be replicated into a computer and that we might be living in something like this. Um, so it's a little bit 
I think he I think he goes a little bit beyond it. And this is simplified, of course, but these are the three big planks to it. Uh, and so at least it's a fun argument. At least it's a little freaky and kind of messes with the mind. So I think it'll be interesting to see how he's remembered once he dies. He He's mm-hmm. like 50 years old right now, so he's quite young. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, I think it's it's really interesting, at least, that he's thinking about AI and super intelligence and the ethics of changing our bodies and the ethics of uploading our minds and how possible that is. He's, he's a physicist by, by training. What did he get his PhD in, actually? Did he get a PhD? No? He got his master's of science in computational neuroscience. So he's not necessarily a philosopher, but I think it is quite, quite interesting. Oh, he does have a PhD uh, in philosophy. But I think it's interesting that he's coming at philosophy in such a science fiction-y way. And it's at least important, I think. Spooky. I think his paper, uh, Ariana Simulation, is where I know his name from. Yep. Which makes sense. It's yep. the most famous mm. paper. Yep. Yeah. That's it. And he was also a stand-up comedian when he was in college. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Uh, usually highly intelligent people are comedians. That's not a joke. Yeah. Oh, it's not a joke, but that was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's get our last spooky, spooky one going. This one's probably no surprise to anyone. Maybe best for last. Taylor? Ooh, no pressure. So my last philosopher that we're going to talk about is none other than Friedrich Nietzsche which I'm sure that many of you have heard of Nietzsche. I think we've talked about him on the podcast before. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. He was a German philosopher writing just after Kierkegaard. So at the turn of the 19th century, no, 20th century, 20th century, he was writing and he was trained actually as a classical philologist, which I believe is like linguistics. So that's kind of how he comes out a lot of his works. And he was an incredibly smart person. He finished his studies very early. He got his PhD in his early 20s and started working as a professor. Like, I think he was like, what, before 25? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like right out of- He was employed mm-hmm. full time as a professor and he worked and he was a very prolific writer. He wrote in many different styles like prose and he critiqued other writers especially Plato and a lot of the very early classic philosophers he wrote about. But he's also famous for lines such as, God is dead and we have killed him. He wrote about other contemporary philosophers like Schopenhauer. He was very influenced by Schopenhauer and wrote an entire essay on Schopenhauer as educator, where he writes that um, the world as we experience it in society influence us to not become our true selves because we get caught up as cogs in a wheel and we just fulfill our role rather than crafting our own identity and that it is our responsibility as humans to pursue things that will cultivate our soul rather than just being um, cogs in machine and just going about our business which he does have some very powerful or encouraging ideas but he's also I don't know a lot of people find him not, I don't know how to say this in a nice way. He's very polarizing, mm-hmm. especially among philosophy students today. There's a lot of mixed opinions on his writings because he is often highly critical. Like in Twilight of Idols, he criticizes Plato 
for his values and for not having a moral system. And he praises Thucydides and has all of these very complex writings. And just I find him a little bit spooky. He kind of looks like a spooky, he spooky does. guy with his gigantic mustache, if y'all have seen. He wins the award for like philosopher mustaches. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. for sure. No <laughs> doubt. No doubt about that. Yeah. Things like a push broom. <laughs> yeah. Much like Kierkegaard, he died young. Mm, yeah. The last 10 years of his life, he was mentally kind of incapacitated. He was in very poor health yeah. and wasn't able to work. He had to stop working when he got really sick. And he passed away. And then a lot of his works were published um, posthumously by his sister. And that's how we have a lot of the works that he wrote, things that he may not have intended to publish, but we have now. Yeah, The Will to Power is that one. And, mm. and uh, it, it's con a lot of disagreement in scholarship community about whether or not that should have ever been published. Mm -hmm. But Because anyway. it was taken over by his... Um his brother right his brother mm. or, or his, yeah, his, his sister his, his brother-in-law yeah. his brother-in-law was a member of the nazi okay. party mm. and, yeah his nazi um, brother-in-law yeah yeah and then he gets somewhat associated with yeah, hitler and it screws like, him over which yeah. is 45 years later mm -hmm. yeah he really gets a bad rap yeah. uh you know what i do think is interesting we've brought up three people three of the six have been very provocative diogenes mm -hmm. uh, marx and uh, and now Nietzsche, those were all provocateurs. I mean, you read their work and it's in your face. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, Marx and Nietzsche are both 19th century. And they're German. Mm. And they're German. <laughs> <laughs> the Germans. Yeah. It's all, it's, it's, so that's a good it's one. interesting too, that they're all men and they're all mm -hmm. European. I don't, well, well and yeah. that's kind of our, yeah. I mean, that's like just how philosophy is, I guess, or it was. So I guess it's not a lot to draw from, but I was thinking about that when we were when we were trying to record. Like, wonder why hmm. that is. Well, you know, I thought about doing something uh, from Japan, like Shintoism or something. Which, but uh, kind of like the the mental health aspect, I didn't want to like yeah, step culturally on the mm -hmm. toes. You know, the belief in like spirits. You know, spirits are ghosts. Halloween, you know, and, and Shinto, like everything is inhabited by. Uh, these the spirits. Oh gosh, I can't remember the word. Anyway, uh, yeah, I did think about going, you know, uh, outside of the European tradition, but then I don't want to step on any toes. Mm -hmm. well, uh, yeah. What about? I'm, and I'm curious about this too. Do you think American philosophy, like this transcendental philosophy that you that you like, it seems a little bit more happy? I don't know why. Oh yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't want to be too corny here, but I think it's kind of like this American optimism. Yeah. Um, and transcendentalism yeah. was all like, "We're not Europe; we're something new." And so, mm -hmm. I love that. Um, That's amazing. I love transcendentalism. Yeah. I don't. I want to say yeah. I love it. The American scholar is a great <laughs> man. Read, read the American. Everyone should read the American Scholar by Emerson. Mm. It's mm. an essay, and it's just all about trying to establish America, American mm -hmm. uh, identity writing and identity and, and intellectual all of it. it was like we are not europe mm -hmm. stop calling us that or something else but anyway it was a bit more positive mm -hmm. uh, i do have to bring up probably one of my favorite quotes by nietzsche uh, taylor which is very spooky mm -hmm. uh, and that's i'm paraphrasing because i never get quotes right careful not to stare too long into mm -hmm. the abyss or the abyss will stare back at you yeah that's as that's as creepy as a quote we'll get on this episode that's a great yeah, one absolutely. man that's a good one. A Thinking one. about etern eternal recurrence, 
which is not, you know, it's mm, not like a real thing yeah. I think he thinks about, but it's an, the idea that if you had to live one moment, uh, like for infinity or forever uh, of your life, um, that's a metric to judge the quality of your life. I, I could be messing that up too. I'm not a, a mm-hmm. I'm not a big Nietzsche scholar or anything, but uh, I, I think that's kind of spooky as well. That idea, it's kind mm-hmm. of haunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it can be hopeful too, if you look at it that way. That you should live each day as if you may have to live this day forever. So you should make it the best that you possibly can, and you should be the best person that you can. But yeah, I agree that it can be haunting at the same time. Yeah, and it makes you take into account like, oh, well, okay, so this terrible thing happened in my life. It was a choice. But my life, because of that terrible thing, ended up being like good. That's true. Mm-hmm. You know, in the long run or whatever. And so like, it makes you consider your entire life and, and will you put up with these pains in order for this greater gain or try to avoid it maybe for something better. But you're right, mm-hmm. Andrew, he didn't. It was more of a thought exercise for him, eternal recurrence, rather than like a, an actual doctrine or belief that he held about what happens to mm-hmm. our souls after we die. Yeah. I think it's interesting that a lot of Nietzsche's work can be read in a way that is both hopeful and haunting at the same time, depending on what perspective you bring to it. If you mm-hmm. want to find it hopeful, you can, and you can read that in it. But if you want to find it haunting and scary, you can also do that. Mm. He kind of leaves that openness, I think, which also can be yeah. scary in itself. That he doesn't tell you what you should think. He just tells you what there is out there and tells you to think for yourself. In some ways, there's definitely ideas that he holds that he's very passionate about. What's what's one book that uh, recommend for an intro to intro to Nietzsche? I would recommend Schopenhauer's Educator. That was one of the first things by Nietzsche that I read. It's primary source. That's where I have most experience from. But it's a short essay, not super long. Um, you could read it within a few sittings, um, and it's pretty. I would say it's fairly accessible. If you sit down and kind of go through it where he, and it's a bit more hopeful, easier to tackle, I would say. For a secondary source, uh, anything by Robert Solomon. I think he's passed away now, but he was mm-hmm. a UT scholar and he's the one who really kind of resurrected Nietzsche as far as uh, like in the 70s and 80s, as far as like something that philosophy should take seriously. Mm-hmm. And so anything by him, there's also a good, what was it called? The Great the great courses or whatever you can get. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's like a multiple, uh, R- Robert Solomon has, has, uh, has an existentialism one on there and talks a lot about Nietzsche on there as well. And then there's a good, a very short introduction to Nietzsche. That's, that's quite good. I think as well. That's right. You read that didn't yeah. you last summer or maybe this summer. I don't know. Last summer. Yeah. That one was pretty good. He's complex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's African, African, Aphronistic, right? He, a lot of his books have is, is a lot pages and pages of aphorisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think he's more accessible. In my experience, he's been more accessible mm-hmm. than someone like Spinoza or yeah, Kant or, or some Enlightenment yeah. pre-father. So that's good. Mm-hmm. That'll that'll be helpful. Yeah. Well, you know, just don't go out and pick up Eke Homo yeah. or. Um, <laughs> or thus spoke Zarathustra. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it, he's, you got to know why he's writing each book and from what perspective he's writing it and why he's writing it. It's just not a book you pick up where he's going to talk about a theory. Yeah, hundred mm-hmm. um, percent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, okay. All right. Yeah, go. let's wrap it up. 
Thanks for, I mean, this was pretty fun. I'm, I'm kind of spooked out. I look a little mm-hmm. down because I'm kind of freaked out and need to go. Are you morose? I, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, it means you're, you're down. Oh. Mm. It means you're bummed. <laughs> well. Are you melancholic? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know yes. how I'm going to sleep tonight. Yeah. This is freaky. I love that word, melancholy. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a. I don't know, state of drunkenness or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyways, that was fun. Maybe we should yeah. do more holiday yeah, that's episodes. Good time. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Oh, I'm just trying Easter to think you know. St. Patrick's Day. Valentine's Day. Irish philosophers or something. Philosophers on love. Valentine's Day. We could bring back yeah, love. Absolutely. That absolutely. one would be really fun. Yeah. And then we would run through all the uh, the American holidays, you know. We'd have to get in Fourth of July. We could do that. Mm-hmm. That would be a good one. Oh, yeah. We could talk about the Declaration uh, of Independence. Day. <laughs> no. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of French philosophy that we could pull up. You know, the British kind of uh, kind of uh, celebrate 4th of July, Independence Day. What? Kind of ironically. No, they do not. Yeah, I was over there. Really? I, they do. I was over there uh, huh. on 4th of July one year. And, uh, you know, like in Oxford, and they're like, hey, we're having a barbecue, you know, down at the... Down to whatever square, come join us. It's Independence Day, and you know it's they it's kind of funny. They they do funny. I remember uh, <laughs> someone told me they're like they took all the they take all these tea bags down to the uh, the Thames River there in Oxford at the bridge, Stop. and they dump it into the they dump the tea bags into the. Oh my river. gosh! <laughs> yeah, that's good times. Anyway, that yes, so after your international holidays. <laughs> Okay, we're officially wrapping this up, guys. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, we, of course, always love that you do. And if you want to contact us about anything, Taylor's going to tell you about that. Yeah. Um, if you liked this episode and you want us to do more episodes like this in the future or you have any questions, email us either at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com or send us a DM on Instagram at opendoorphilosophy. And if you want to see the video version of this podcast and you're listening by audio, look on our YouTube channel. That's great. We're trying. We're trying. Let us know if you like this uh, new format online because it's new. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. Anyways, if you are interested in supporting us further, you can hit the like, subscribe, give us five star rating on Apple. We haven't said Mm -hmm. that in so long. Apple Podcasts, give us a a rating. Yeah. That's wild. So so do that. Give us some feedback. And remember, if your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Thank you. Bye. See ya. Ooh. Can you put some <laughs> Scooby-Doo music in? Uh, I've got, I'm going to have all kinds of music in this one. <laughs>